Good morning. Good morning. Great to see you guys. All right. Hey, don't forget, it was hard to not notice it on your way in this morning, but there's a bunch of stuff going on in the parking lot right out here. Uh, and that is a fall fest day. And it's not just for kids. There's uh, Everybody's going to eat lunch when you leave here. We know that. That's just a given on Sunday. So lunch is provided. Lots of fun food to eat outside. But one of the greatest things I love about this moment is it just gives us a moment just to hang out and catch up. And so if you're new to the church or you just haven't had a conversation with some friends for a while or you just can spare an hour or so just to hang, uh, please do that. that. That's what we do these things for to give us an opportunity to fellowship. There is an interesting competition going on out there between our small groups. So please visit the small groups. If you're not part of a small group, maybe this is the reason you join one. They had the best booth out there or bribed you the best or did something to get you to come be a part of what they're doing. But that's available for you outside uh, as well, right after the service today. Let's do this for a moment. I think sometimes I'm, I'm more in touch with just how noisy my own soul can be. I don't know if you guys would readily agree with that. It's a noisy time of life, isn't it? Just our world is noisy and our own lives can get very, very noisy. And yet this is, this is supposed to be holy ground. This is a, a place where God designs rest to come and find us. And, and we need rest for our souls. And we, we, we find that rest in the nearness of God. And so his word's going to help us to be near to him. The words that we've sung have helped us. But can we just take a moment and, and just pray before we even get into opening the Bible together? Just ask the Lord to help us be near to him right now. Father, thank you that there is such a concept as nearness in your word. And Lord, we sometimes don't realize it, but sometimes our lives feel so chaotic, so difficult, so disorienting. Because nearness isn't what we're feeling, but distance is what we're feeling. And God, we're going to hear some great helpful truth today as to whether that distance is is really true or not. But Lord, there's also an experiencing of you that we don't want to overlook. And so, Father, whoever we are this morning, sitting in this room, watching by live stream, Lord, we want to experience your nearness. We want your word to penetrate deeply into our lives. God, we we have heard so many things this week. We need to hear something from you. And so, God, would you draw near to us through your word and would you speak to us as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I titled this message, actually the last couple of messages under the heading of Reformation 2021, because I don't want us to just locate the Reformation back in the 1500s. There's Reformation today, but specifically I want to talk about tampering with justification today. And I'll, I'll unpack that for us in just a moment. But why is it, and this is a helpful thing for us, why does Reformation stay available and necessary and important. It's 2021. I mean, you're talking about the the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages gave birth to a setting for the church that just produced this horrible time period that they certain certainly they needed reformation. But you know, what I don't know about us, right? Well, reformation never goes away. Right? How many guys remember uh how many remember the Ronco rotisserie? Do y'all remember the Ronco rotisserie? This is probably back in the 90s. 
It was famous for set it and forget it. See, some of y'all watched the commercial, right? So you could just take your chicken, stick it in this Ronco rotisserie and just set it and forget it. Just go about your business and you come back a few hours later in this incredibly juicy, we actually had one. My wife and I had a Ronco rotisserie. I don't know what we did with it, but you did that. Exactly. Can, can I just tell you, I don't know what your personality is like. Maybe you're one of those control freaks. Maybe you're one of those people who just loves to pay attention to details all the time. Um, I, I, I like to live a life where you set it and forget it, right? I just like to get things in place and then I like to go on to something else and I don't ever want to touch that again. I just want it to just be that way. And it's so frustrating because life isn't that way, is it? There's nothing in our life that's that way. And, and unfortunately, we can get a little bit surprised by that. We can think that, you know, when Jesus came and established his church, he just set it and forget it, Right? It's going to stay on track. It's going to be constant revival. Every church that ever existed is going to be incredible. They're going to grow numerically. They're going to grow deeper in God's word. That's going to be their story. But, you know, you recognize you don't get out of the first century without the church needing reformation. Did you, do you know the, the, the apostle Paul founds and forms the church in Ephesus? And he invests his life there for years and follows up with them and sets everything in place. That church doesn't make it out of the first century without getting in the weeds, right? That's the church that Jesus speaks to and says, you have abandoned your first love in the late nineties of that first century. So the church never exists without the need for reformation. We don't exist personally without the need for reformation. God could have done an incredible work in your life and saving you and changed things incredibly for the first few years of your life. You could have experienced revival in your walk two or three years ago. And yet there are still things that God will touch and reform in your life. That's true in your marriage. That's true in your relationships. These people being together with one another could have been in one place 15 years ago and you find yourself in another place. Right? Don't, don't be discouraged by that. Tim Keller offers an interesting explanation for that. I think it's a helpful one. In his book about walking with God through pain and suffering, he says... When we confront suffering, we think that what will solve it is a change in maybe public policy or the latest or best expertise in psychology and therapy or technological advances. But the world's darkness is too deep to be dispelled merely by such things. It's wrong in our pride to believe that we can control and defeat the darkness with our knowledge. Most of the time, we do not admit how dark the world is. Pain and evil in this world are listen, pervasive and deep and have spiritual roots. They cannot be completely reduced to empirical causes that can be isolated and entirely eliminated. As Hamlet said, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Right? We read that last week from Colossians. There are things that are seen and things that are unseen. There are thrones and dominions. There are things in this world that just go beyond some of the daily grind stuff of our lives. Perhaps even more to the point is a line from J.R. Tolkien's novel, The Lord of the Rings. All right, for the sake of my children, I did not quote The Lord of the Rings today. Tim Keller did, okay? Always after a defeat and respite, evil takes another shape and grows again. 
Evil just takes another form and grows in some new way. If we're going to face it, it takes more than earthly resources. So here we are today recognizing that it's, it's Reformation Day. There was this moment when courageous Christians stared out into the world and said, evil has corrupted something that God has created. There's a problem here and there's a need for reform. And when we look back on that massive event, but what we can't do is look back on that event and act as though we won't need to do that in our day. We won't need to live in a moment where we stare out at the belief systems that are going on around us and and we don't have an awareness that there's a need for some of those things to be reformed. Some of those ideas that are now washing up into our lives, they need to be analyzed and rejected and replaced. And to some degree, the world is busy highlighting and telling us which ideas need to be replaced. And unfortunately, the church is like subscribing to their magazine. And whatever ideas the world comes along and says, this, you need to start doing it differently. This has been done wrong for centuries. This is not the way to do that. And and we're just reading the same book. But what I'm going to highlight today may not be on anybody's radar. And it would be tragic because back in the 1500s and even before then, I mean, then like uh, Wycliffe and John Huss, the two, dec- two centuries before we get to the 1500s, were preaching concerns in these very areas. So are, are we engaged with reforming the same things that Martin Luther was concerned about in his day? Because we do need to pay attention to that. Erwin Lutzer wrote a book called Rescuing the Gospel, the Story and Significance of the Reformation. He said this, Many people ignore the fundamental beliefs of the Reformation. The doctrinal apathy among many Christians in our nation is deserving of tears. Church growth experts tell us that most people seeking a new church care little about its doctrine. They're mostly interested in the facilities of the church. It's nursery and opportunities for friendship. In fact, we're told that doctrinal teaching in new members classes will actually turn people away rather than encourage them to join the church. The experts tell us that today's church members will switch churches at a moment's notice, and we have watched it happen, if they think that their personal and relational needs will be better met elsewhere. I guess I should, I should warn people who are new to the church. I'm not sure why you came here, but we are going to choke you to death with doctrine around here. Just warning you. What those guys did in the Reformation was they put their lives on the line. Literally, they lost their lives. They were ostracized. If they didn't lose their lives, they, were, they became such pariah and social outcasts. And they did so over doctrinal issues over issues of debate, over what does the Bible actually teach. They held them so strongly that they were willing to die on those hills. But here's an obvious question. Uh, Why does the church ever need reform? If I put it to you this way, you'll see why it's important. Here's a phrase. I think I put this in your outline. The church changes as it encounters the pressure of new ideas and priorities and eventually traditions. The church changes 
It changes what it believes. It changes what it practices. It changes what it emphasizes, what you hear the most, what people stare at the most, what people in your small group make the biggest deal out of. The church changes when it gets pressure by new ideas, new priorities, and then those things over time, they become traditions. And then all of a sudden, it's just what we've always done. This is what we've always believed. Why do you do that? Well, I don't really know. It's just what we've always done. What was the heart of the Reformation? I just want to zero us in on something that I believe and most scholars would agree. There were many things, right? There's 95 theses nailed to the door to have a discussion over those 95 ideas affecting the church. But there was one particular that sticks out, and it's the issue of the doctrine of justification. So can I unpack that a little bit for us? We're going to read more than I normally do, which actually means we'll go faster today because I won't be just speaking off the top of my head. Trevin Wax wrote an interesting article a few years ago called Justification, the Defining Doctrine of the Reformation. This is very helpful, so I'll just let him speak for what frames Martin Luther's moment. He says, the Reformation was in the 16th century. Even Roman Catholics today affirm that the church of the time was in desperate need of reform. We'll go into the details, but it was a cesspool of behavior and ideas and practices and immorality. Yet Martin Luther came to, to understand that the true dividing line between him and Rome was not in papal authority, the sale of indulgences, the existence of purgatory, or even the place of tradition. The fundamental difference was found in how the gospel Worked. In other words, on what basis is a person justified before God? And so before I unpack the rest, is that an issue you have stared at really, really carefully? Are you just living in some hand-me-down ideas? What is it that makes any of us right with God? He highlights the difference between infusion versus imputation. And you might feel like he's splitting hairs here, but he died over this. And other men lived their lives. Well, he didn't die over it, but he was opposed over this. And other men lived their lives and died over it. Listen, the Protestant differed from Roman Catholic on justification in several important ways. First, they, the Protestants, believed that justification was a declaration of righteousness made by God regarding human beings. They countered the Catholic notion that justification was God's action of making someone righteous by infusing grace into them. Instead, justification was declared righteous, not being made righteous. Protestants believe that righteousness was not infused into the believer, but imputed to the believer. In other words, God justifies sinners by seeing them as righteous on account of Christ's righteousness reckoned or imputed to them. Right? You get the very righteousness of Christ transferred to our account. It becomes our righteousness in all of its fullness. How does God justify the ungodly? By declaring an ungodly person as righteous based on the righteousness of someone else. God does not accept sinners by making them righteous or by giving them heavenly grace, but solely 
on the basis of the death and resurrection of his son in the place of the sinner. That's a good clarifier. Christ's death was the moment, and that's correct to use the word moment, the moment in which he took our sins upon himself and died a substitutionary death in the place of the sinner. In the moment of salvation or justification, the sinner's wickedness is placed on Christ and Christ's perfect righteousness is placed on the sinner. Luther called this the great exchange Christ takes our sin and we take his righteousness. God then declares us righteous on the basis of Christ's work alone. So justification in the Bible sits more like a light switch than an oven, if that makes sense. We do a lot of oven work around my house. I've learned a lot about ovens because my wife loves to bake and... I don't know if you knew this or not, but all right. So if you have a gas oven and you go to cook something in it, right? It starts at a certain temperature, probably room temperature. And you click that thing on and it moves from 74 degrees up to hundred degrees slowly. And you wait a little bit longer and it slowly warms up a little bit more and it gets to 150 and then it gets to 200. And then let's say you're kind of trying to bake at 350. Your oven's actually going to go past 350. Uh, if it's a gas oven, it's going to go up to 375, maybe 380, and then it's going to shut itself off and it's going to go down and it's not going to stay at 350. It's going to go down to 320 and then it's going to kick back on. It's going to go back to 316. So, so this is what, now follow my illustration here. This is what righteousness in your oven looks like. It starts here and it slowly over time does this and then it begins to do this. So if God infuses righteousness into one's life, he starts with some product and he lives his life trying to do this with his righteousness. He's trying to get it to warm up, trying to get righteousness to go to another level. The righteousness that Martin Luther described was more like a light switch. One minute you don't have it, the next minute you do. And it doesn't come on and like, is that light on? It looks like it might be coming on. It's not a dimmer switch. It's a light switch. And so in a moment, God has made righteousness to become fully ours. It will not become a different measure of righteousness. It is either fully righteous or we are unrighteous. And so there's not a slow cook going on when it comes to your righteousness and it's increasing or varying. We either have righteousness completely because of the person and work of Christ, or we do not. Now listen, the reformers recognize that's how the Bible describes being right with God. It is a righteousness described in scripture. And so they began to teach justification. That justification makes you completely right with God. And that caused the church to freak out. Because they did not believe that. Because they had tampered with justification by associating human activity, human merit, good things that you do could jack the temperature up a little bit more. So if you had a good day, you did some right things, you helped the poor, you helped the sick, you prayed, you prayed certain prayers, you could jack up the temperature a little bit more. As opposed to Martin Luther saying, wait, that's not how righteousness works. Justification is like a light switch. God, in an instant, transfers 
the accomplishment of his son to us. Well, the church hated that thought. Right? So you have the Reformation beginning in 1517 with the nailing of the theses to the door. And then you have the Council of Trent that happens in the late 1500s, about 1563, if I'm remembering correctly. And this is what the Council of Trent said. The Council of Trent was the counter move of the church to the Reformation. What the Reformation sought to establish, the church came back and said, that's wrong. Don't believe that. So here's what the Council of Trent said. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof. Let him be anathema. Let him be forever cut off from God. By the way, that, to my knowledge, is not a rescinded statement. That if you continue to believe that, you are at odds with Catholic teaching in this area. That, that you could stand right now and say, I am as fully accepted before God as I will ever be because it's not on the basis of what I have done or am doing right now and will be doing in the weeks to come. It is completely because of the righteousness of Christ transferred to me. If you believe that, there is a view that says you are cut off from God. You are anathema, right? Now, I don't want to just keep us in the 1500s. I want to pull us into the fact that we have some challenges with tampering with justification. Right. And I, wanna, I want you to see something here. So I have a big chunk, a big more reading than I like to do. But here is a section about justification and indulgences. This is what lit Martin Luther up in the 1500s. That Listen carefully to what's trying to be accomplished and to the tampering that's going on in this passage. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And the, the numbers are from 1476, the, the entry number, down to 1479. says this. The treasury of the church is the infinite value which can never be exhausted, which Christ's merits have before God. They were offered so that the whole of mankind could be set free from sin and attain communion with the Father. In Christ, the Redeemer himself, the satisfactions and merits of his redemption exist and find their efficacy. All right. I don't think we have a problem with that. That's, that's a celebration of what Christ has done. Could we just leave it there? But then we keep reading, 1477. This treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission the Father entrusted to them. In This way, they attained their own salvation and at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity of the mystical body. What just happened in this paragraph? We got introduced to a treasury of merit that exists. And that merit is intended to posture us before God. And we learn that Christ made a contribution to this treasury of merit, but so did others. 
And at the top of that list is the Virgin Mary. And then there are other saints who have made contributions into this treasury of merit that you and I can draw from and benefit from in presenting it before God. Now, indulgences come in into this category, 1478. An indulgence is obtained through the church who, by virtue of the power of binding and loosing granted her by Christ Jesus, intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints to obtain from the Father of mercies, listen, the remission of the temporal punishments due for their sins. So when you read that carefully, you acknowledge that apparently there remains punishment for sins. But when we read the Bible, we don't find that to be the case. We find that Jesus fully took the punishment for our sins, leaving none available for us ever in eternity. But in this, when you start tampering with justification by introducing human activity, you start to unbolt a lot of things. Now, before some of you Protestants get all over the Catholics here, uh, let's make sure we're not doing that. Let's make sure we haven't installed our own version of featuring human works in what God can and does do among us and in us and around us. All right. One more thing here. He says, thus the church does not want, well, there's a desire here, simply to come to the aid of these Christians, but also to spur them to works of devotion, penance, and charity. Okay, so now we're tampering with the doctrine of justification for the sake of providing motivation for people to live a better life for God. That's what's behind that. 1479, one more. Since the faithful departed, now being purified. So that raises the question, what is it that purifies a person before God? Because in this belief system, there is something else besides Jesus that is acting to purify them. There's not the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin, as the Bible declares. There is a presentation here that they are now being purified, are also members of the same communion of saints. One way we can help them is to obtain indulgences for them so that the temporal punishments due for their sins may be remitted. So this presents the idea that loved ones that we have known, when they have departed from us, they land in a place called purgatory, where there is an ongoing remitting of sins taking place and purifications taking place. And so this never gets said, right? Uh, And it's an awkward thing, but I I just, you know, for the sake of consistency in terms of our belief systems, uh, when we attend a funeral, and we paint the idea that a person is celebrating before the presence of God. If you believe this, that's not accurate. They are in more torment after they have died than they ever experienced in this life because they are being purged of sins after they have died. And so what Martin Luther got freaked out about was, and wait, so now you're teaching people that if they donate to the church, they can cut years off of their loved one's suffering in purgatory? Is That's what you're teaching? So it wasn't just the indulgences that got under his skin. It was the fact that you are negating justification 
by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's what drove this moment. And, and that's what needs to drive us. But note two things carefully that's in this concept. One, the aid being sought is aiding a person's merit. It's aiding their level of righteousness. Here, the doctrine of justification is associated with human activity that is good and meritorious. You can contribute to your posture of merit before God by doing good things or by somebody else doing them on your behalf and you having the indulgence applied to you. Second, this is there to spur them to works of devotion, penance, and charity. Here, the doctrine of justification is associated with motivating behavior. We tamper with justification to try and feel more right with God and to try to motivate people's behavior. That's not a Catholic issue. That's an everybody issue. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. We tamper with justification to try and feel more right with God. I want to feel more right with God. I want to feel like I'm really accepted by him. I want to feel like his presence is with me and for me. I want to feel something. And we try to motivate other people's behavior. So we, we begin to tamper with their justification because we want them to stop doing what they're doing. We want them to start living better lives. We want them to be more like Christ. And these are all good things. Is there anything wrong with us wanting to, for people to live a better life? Wanting for people to stop doing this and start doing that? Is, is that wrong for us? No. It just becomes wrong when you tamper with justification in order to accomplish that. And you begin to try and motivate other believers by tampering with justification. Here's the focal point of his 95 thesis. Erwin Lutzer says it this way. We'll begin by examining Martin Luther's own spiritual journey and pinpoint the most important questions we need to ask ourselves about theology. Here are the questions. How can a sinner stand in the presence of God? You and I wrestle with that question, don't we? When we live our lives. And second, how perfect do we have to be in order to get to heaven? And so let me, I, I, hopefully I wrote this out in your outline, a note here. A doctrine that defines and influences, listen, our nearness to God and our acceptance by God is a daily Mount Everest doctrine. Because there's nothing that matters more to us in this world. Our sense of nearness to God and our acceptance by God. At any moment, in different seasons, in times of failure, while traveling through deep darkness, you will invariably ask, where is God? Is God with me? Is God for me? Is God opposed to me? Let, let the 19th thing go wrong in your life in a row. And tell me you're not asking these questions. Is God against me? Does God even love me? Am I facing God's opposition or his favor in my life? Well, be careful how you answer that. Be careful. Got nothing to do with being in the 1500s. This is a 2021 moment. Be careful what your personality provides you with an answer. Can I just tell you there's a bunch of people in this room who almost never feel that way. Is God, you know, God's chill. God's fine. He, you know, hey, man, I, God's cool with me all the time. There's a bunch of people in the room here who never get bugged the way some of you get bugged. And then there's another set of people 
in the room who are very much in tune with themselves and what they're doing and how they feel and a sense of guilt that abides with them and they're falling short and they're very aware of it. And their personality is one of those, pay attention to all the details. Every little action matters. What everybody else does matter. What I do matters. The, the future of my life matters because I did this and I didn't do that. I did that yesterday. And then back here, there's a big one. There's that big one. I'm never going to escape that big one. And that's kind of a shadow lurking over my life. There's no way God can use me. There's no way God can do good in my life because you don't know where I've been and what I've done. There are some people in the room who have no idea what I just described. And there are some people in this room who live under that shadow every day. And then we grow up. We grow up in churches. We grow up in churches that make noise over here and they're silent over here. They make it feel like this is the worst possible thing you could ever do in your life. And they ignore this over here, which is sin as well. And, they, and we install things in one another. We install these boundaries and these ditches And all of a sudden you find yourself in a ditch that the church you go to emphasizes a lot. And you're in that ditch and you are now you're trying to figure out how on earth could God be for me? I've I've done one of the taboo sins. I'm on the really bad list. Uh, Can I just tell you the really bad list is a lot longer than whatever you've heard from this pulpit? Everybody loves to, to jack around and talk a lot about Uh, sins of commission. You did this. You did that. Can I just tell you, I could heap more guilt on everybody in this room just by telling you what you've neglected to do. You and I have neglected more probably than we have done against God. Did you delight in spending time with God this week as though he was the most important treasure in all the world? And you shoved everything else aside to make him the object of your obsession and your affections. And you expressed that adequately to him this week. Or were you just busy? You know, had a lot going on. It was a crazy week. But God will understand. Oh, really? Would you like me to preach five weeks in a row on how God doesn't understand that? And then at the end of those five weeks, let's see how you do with the guilt that now sits on you. See, there are ways that this stuff gets installed in us. And if we're not careful how we manage it, it begins to tamper with the doctrine of justification. And you get statements like this. This is Martin Luther wrestling with this doctrine before he arrives. He says, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. How'd you like to live that on a daily basis? The sense that God never delights in you. You just fall short over and over and over again. You don't take the things that God has said seriously almost ever in your life. And you are just always, always aware of that. And you begin to believe that any good in your life is yoked to your own activity of goodness in your life. That is tampering with the doctrine of justification. And we don't have to go back to the 1500s to find that, do we? So we we don't need to preach this today because Martin Luther made a big deal about this. Can I just tell you the Bible makes a big deal about this? Let me give you a quick tour of the Bible making a big deal about this. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. 
Paul said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. If there's a key ingredient to the doctrine of justification, it is that. It is the grace of God. And you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Why is the church reforming and always in need of reforming? Because of that. There are some who are going to trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That was true in the 1500s. It is true in 2021. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, right? That's a call for reformation. That's a call for a moment, which the Apostle Paul does in Galatians, to say, this is what you're being taught. That needs to be reformed. This is why it's wrong. And he does. Galatians is an unpacking of wrong views about the doctrine of justification, and he replaces them with right views. So... You know, where there is a conflict sometimes, and we bring the Bible to bear on the thinking of our age and the thinking of this world, I don't know if sometimes that, that sounds intolerant, it sounds unkind, it sounds obnoxious for the church to do that, but the church is reformed and always reforming. There's never going to be a day where we don't need to confront ideas that have troubled us and begun to influence how we understand the gospel. He goes on in Galatians 3 and says it this way. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? By something you do? Did you receive the Spirit by human activity? Is that, is that what generated this thing? Your meritorious contribution? Is that how you received the Spirit? Or by hearing? With faith. Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Perfected by your own efforts? Perfected by your sense of increasing righteousness? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? All right, park there. Christian in 2021, because this isn't just about the 1500s. There's a God who supplies the spirit to us. He gives us life. He comes and he takes up his dwelling in us, us. And he does stuff in our lives. He works miracles among you. He does things in our lives. What's the basis for him doing that? It depends on how good I've been lately. Depends on whether I've kept my car out of the weeds. Depends on whether I've broken into the taboos that Keith mentions from the pulpit so often. I don't know whether you feel that way or not, but it's quite possible that we do. But the Galatians got whiplash in this moment because that's how they were. And what they needed to hear was, hey, what, what do you think the basis of God doing stuff is in your life? You, you think it's because of works of the law? You think it's because you followed a code? You think it's because you did right 
10 times in a row and finally God's grace could kick in in your favor? Do you think that's where this comes from? Or is it hearing with faith? Hearing what? Hearing about the righteousness of another one who will give it to you freely and you receive it by faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ lived 100% of the righteous requirement that the God of the universe had for human beings? Do you believe that? Do you believe he died in your place to cleanse you of all sins, not most of your sins, didn't leave you a dropper full of sins that you would have to deal with later? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God accepted fully the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf to make you as right with God as you're ever, ever going to be? Do you believe that? That's how you receive it, by just believing it. And then he goes on and clarifies that. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Did he turn a light switch on with Abraham or turn the oven on with Abraham? Tell me from that passage. He believed. God comes along and says, Abraham, this is who I am. I am Yahweh. I am the originator of everything. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to go before you. Promise after promise after promise. Abraham just goes, Okay. Instantly the light comes on and he's righteous. Instantly. Not, okay, set out on your journey, Abraham. I've turned the oven on. You're now at 100 degrees because I've injected a little heat in there. And we'll see how you do. Maybe 20 years from now, you'd be up to 200 degrees. Maybe 40, you'd be up to 300 degrees. And then you're probably going to do this like everybody else. Is that how Abram receives righteousness? No. And, and we are corrected, the Galatians are corrected to understand righteousness comes to us suddenly in a moment, having received it. And then Paul makes it even worse. He says, if you tamper with this, you destroy it. He says, you don't damage it, you actually destroy it. Galatians 5, 2, he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, I don't know if you know what's going on here with these Galatians. Paul, nowhere in Galatians, holds an apologetic for why Jesus really is the Son of God. And they should believe in him. Nowhere is he trying to create a transfer of faith into the agreement of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's not what he's fixing because these people acknowledge Christ. They believe in him. The fatal thing that they have done wrong is not that they deny Christ or won't believe in him. It's that they have added something to him. They believe in him plus a little bit more. And they have tampered with justification. And Paul says, if you do that, if you add an eyedropper full of something you got to contribute, in this moment it's circumcision, Christ will be of no value to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's now obligated to keep the whole law. You want to make this about what you do? Then it's 100% about what you do. From start to finish, everything about your life now is the thing that's going to justify you. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. That's powerful. You are severed from Christ. I know this flies in the face of the Jesus who really doesn't care about a lot of stuff, right? 
doesn't care about so many things. He doesn't care what you believe. He doesn't care about most of the stuff in your life. You know, just as long as you do this good deed or that good deed or on this right side of an issue, Jesus is pretty chill. Uh, well, this doesn't sound like a chill Jesus. This sounds like a Jesus who you can be severed from because you dared, dared to add an out. Righteousness of God is really all about that you think as a fallen human being, you could present your works before this God. What an insult to this God. Like he's the neighbor down the street who's easily, easily pleased by your box of cookies. This is the God of the universe. He is not easily impressed. He knows that. Instead, what he did, he took one, his own son, and got as impressed as he ever could be with what Jesus Christ did. And then he picked that up and transferred it to you. And now he is impressed with you. But for reasons that didn't come from you. You didn't generate that. Paul goes a little farther to the Romans and he says, Romans eleven six. if it's by grace, if, if this is the basis for what we're talking about, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, here's the warning for us. For Paul, the introduction of human activity into the salvation by grace alone doctrine of justification, it destroyed grace and it elevated human boasting and human centrality. If the church tampers with justification, it will invariably become man-centered and it will marginalize the grace of God. And this is the real danger for tampering with justification. The Galatians received the strongest correction of probably anybody in the New Testament. Paul blows them up over the doctrine of justification, over them missing on that issue. Can, can you imagine, right? I mean, we live in a polarized community. We, we live with a bunch of ideas being featured right now. Do you have any idea how many issues Paul is ignoring when he writes to the Galatians? I mean, can you make Paul a real person? Can you make them real? Can you imagine there was a government in place and there was racial problems and there was ethnic issues and there was selfishness and there were government policies and there was government overstep? Right, when the government overstepped in that day, by the way, they didn't require you to wear a mask. They cut your head off. They crucified you alongside the road on the way into town. Right, so can you imagine, were there any issues, Paul, you could have talked about? Anything you could have protested in this day? You wrote just about the doctrine of justification to the Galatians? This should have been a much longer letter. Or the doctrine of justification is a massively important issue that we should pay attention to. Paul was reforming them in this day. But let me pull him away from the Galatians for a second. Because Paul is going to apply the doctrine of justification to the Corinthians as well. And they sound a little bit more like us. I think there's not too many of us here who acknowledge at least and own the fact that we're smuggling circumcision into our salvation. But we're smuggling something, right? But what about this? When, remember, when you tamper with the doctrine of justification, you unbolt the grace of God and it becomes wishy-washy too. And next thing you know, the way you do life together begins to get weird. And that was the problem the Corinthians had. But I want you to see the same solution sits for them as well. Right? Just a quick run through this. Most of us remember this from studying the Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 1. Here's the Corinthians. Here's their problem. Here's what I'm going to call the fruit of man-centeredness. You have D, 
elevated the doctrine of justification and you have elevated human activity. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Listen, when the doctrine of justification no longer captures my attention, something else will. And pretty much the only other thing available, it's either what Christ has done and who Christ is, or what you and I have done and who you and I are. That's about the only two things available in that moment. So the moment I begin to pay more attention to that, welcome to Corinth. Welcome to competition with each other. I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. What, what is that about? Really, you're celebrating Christ by saying it that way? No, 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 no. I, I'm just trying to elevate myself. I'm trying to find some unique ground for me to stand on. I'm in competition with you. Because we've elevated human activity. We've made it the thing that we stare at. So not only do I need to figure out what I need to do to get one up and to feel better about myself and maybe be a little bit one step ahead of you, I also need to help you see how you are falling behind. Where you lack, where you are at fault, where you fall short. So now we're creating a setting where there's quarrels among us. Because the way we relate to one another has lost its sense of grace because we have misplaced the doctrine of justification. And we're all over human activity and how important it is. Oh, and it's so important. Listen, there are some of us here today who think the, the, the future of God can never take place because there's, there's people in your life or in this church or in our country who aren't going to cooperate with God. Because human activity, right? That's the center of all good. Humans need to do good in order for there to be good. For your life to have a future, you need to figure out what good you need to do so that God can get involved with you. Oh, wow. What happened to the grace of God? What happened to while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies of God. We weren't giving God the time of day. His son did the greatest deed of restoration that could ever happen for us. While we were enemies of God. Listen, Abraham was an idol worshiper when God shows up in his world and says, you're going to be my child and I'm going to raise up a nation from you. He didn't deserve that. And we don't deserve it either. Here's a remedy that Paul runs to. This is the first chapter. I mean, he didn't get out of the gate and he's talking about, you guys got problems with each other, don't you? And here's where he goes in chapter one, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. We preach the merits of another person. We preach what somebody else did on our behalf. That's what we preach. That's where our righteousness comes from. That's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling. This is, this is the intro. This is what the doctrine of justification does. It humbles all of us. 
Consider your calling, brothers. Can I just take a moment, Paul says, to dismantle your sense of merit before God? Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why'd you do all that, God? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God designed a way for us to relate to him that has nothing to do with something we have done, because if it does, welcome to the most arrogant people on the planet. We have access to the mighty eternal God. What's your problem? Can I, can I tell you sometimes a church does sound that way? And it sounds that way because what Martin Luther was willing to lose his life over, too many Christians today just want to know, so you got a good children's program here? Got a good nursery? Do you have multiple services? Because we got a lot going on on the weekends. That's, that's the church? That's what's driving your church decisions? This ought to be driving your church decisions. How a church manages and handles the doctrine of justification should be sitting at the center. Verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, righteousness. Where did the righteousness come from that's in my life? Because of him, righteousness has come to me, sanctification and redemption. And that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, when you stare at what Christ has done, you get amazed by it and you want to talk about it and you want to tell everybody else about it. You want to make a big deal about it. More of a big deal than whatever you're doing. And more of a big deal than what anybody else is doing. You just kind of get obsessed with what Jesus has done. This is not the only time that Paul breaks this out. Kurt, you can go ahead and come back up here. Thank you, buddy. Paul does this again to the Corinthians. Because when you interact with their problems, it seems as though Paul says, you know, if you guys would stop losing the doctrine of justification, some of these problems would be affected by it. So you get to chapter 6, he brings it up again. When one of you has a grievance against another, right? Welcome to man-centered dysfunction. Does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, by the way, this is, this is pretty much our resumes, right? Idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were, flip the light switch, justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Do you get, you read that verse and understand it's not saying you're on your way to something. It is saying you are this right now. And that not by your doing, but what Christ has done for you. So you are justified. You are, you're not being, you are justified right now. Even though this stuff is in your resume, such were some of you. You are justified. 
So what happens to a church when the doctrine of justification just begins to sit a little bit too far away from us? Well, we start looking like the Galatians, who were in need of reform. We start looking like the Corinthians, who were in need of reform. Right? So, I don't know if you guys know, we identify as a reformed church. Uh, and, and that's primarily emphasizing the doctrines that came out of the Reformation. We, we identify with those doctrines. We orient around those doctrines. Uh, but, but we are also reformed and being reformed. If anybody is here thinking, you're not going to have something to complain about here, can I just warm you up to the idea that is not going to be the case? <laughs> There's going to be lots of things you stare at, and you're going to go, oh, I don't know if we do that very well. And I don't know about that. You know, and that doesn't look very good. Because the church is always in need of reform. The church that Paul visited, and this could be us, that took on Corinthian characteristics. They were divided. They had a hard time coming together. They couldn't find the right thing to rally around. And so these secondary matters became the rally points. And if I can't get you to see this right, then we can't partner together. And I see this in the body of Christ everywhere. It's like the cancel culture has come like a disease among God's people. And it's, it's elevated secondary matters and say, hey, if you and I can't do secondary matters, we can't. We can't do gospel ministry together. And people walk away from each other. And I stare at that and I go, where's the doctrine of justification in this moment? Where you have stared at Christ, you have realized the righteousness that's been transferred to you by his grace and you are fully his by none of your own doing. That's the main thing. That's the big thing that makes you and I to relate to one another. But you know, when you lose that, all the secondary issues will come to life. And we're going to be dividing over masks and over vaccines and over your view of politics this way and this particular candidate and this practice. And we'll divide over all those things because the big stuff has left the room. So Reformation 2021 is for us to ponder as well. The doctrine of justification had been tampered with leading up to 1517. And maybe it's been tampered with today as well. Let's stand up together. Lord, maybe for some of us here this morning, the busyness and the activity of our lives causes us to stare at a lot of stuff. We just, it's hard to keep a schedule. It's hard to maintain a pace. It's hard to manage all the things going on in our lives. And, and Lord, we're sitting here this morning, perhaps realizing this, this thing called the doctrine of justification. Ah, oh, I can't recall the last time I really stared at it really hard, meditated on it, pondered what it means can't recall the last time I celebrated it and let it inform me of how it is that this grants me something before you that I can't change and no one can change. So Lord, maybe we're here this morning and, and we need to pull the doctrine of justification a little closer to us. Let me just speak to anybody who's here this morning and and you're hearing something that, that takes your 
activity of religious goodness or just being spiritual or doing something good. And it places it in a different category. And this morning, you're aware that that you've never heard that it's not about what you do. It's about what Christ fully did on your behalf. And, And you can turn the light switch on, if you will, or actually God will turn it on for you. This morning, you could go from one condition before God, one standing before God, to instantaneously another standing before God. This is not about you improving. It's not about your efforts and your activity. That's important stuff, but not in this category. So maybe you're here this morning and would you like to have that light switch flipped for you? Would you like to have God transfer righteousness to your life so that you can leave this building today knowing I'm right with God. I am completely and totally right with God. Boy, what a moment of reformation, huh? And there's no pressure on you to keep it up, to improve it, to add something to it. As a matter of fact, if you try to add anything to it, you lose the whole thing. So if you're here this morning and you're saying, hey, okay, so how do I, how do, I do that? Well, that light switch comes when you believe what God has said about his son. He, he sent his son, his only son, perfect God came to earth, took the form of a man, lived the perfect life, did what no other human being could ever do. And then he surrendered himself to the cruelty of man to be crucified and murdered on a cross. Now, don't be confused. He yielded his life up. They did not take his life from him. He yielded his life. And he received on himself the sin of all who would call upon him. Every sin you and I have ever committed was placed on Christ. And he died in our place. But God resurrected him from the dead to make a statement to the whole world that what he did, he did on my behalf. I empowered this. I accept this offering that Jesus has given of his own life for the sake of anybody who will call upon him. Will you believe that and put your hope in Jesus? That's the light switch. Just receive it and put your faith in Christ. And this morning, God will turn the light switch on and you are right with him. And when an adventure begins for all eternity now, from now on. Now, for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a while, can you fish around your life for a moment? Are there there a lot of conflicts in your life? Is there a lot of division in your life? Is there hostility and broken relationships in your life? You trying to navigate that and having a hard time doing it? Have you stopped to think that maybe you've misplaced the doctrine of justification? That you're relating to people out of an attitude that hasn't been informed by the grace of God in justification, that you have received something that should be extremely humbling to you. Oh, but you don't know what that person did. You don't know how long they've been doing it. You don't know how horrible it's been. You're right, I don't. But the perfect God who has never sinned has embraced you with all of your sin. And he's forgiven you completely. That's the doctrine of justification. Maybe you're in a posture right now where you're full of criticism. You're full of complaint. 
could be in all kinds of stuff. It could be your workspace. Nobody can do right. You can't stand this one. You can't stand that policy. You can't stand that person. Maybe that's how you feel about your church. Maybe that's how you feel about a relationship that you're in. There's just a lot of criticism and complaining. Listen, you, you might be giving away the fact that you have elevated human activity and it's really big and you have demoted the grace of God and it's become really small. And to fix that, don't make the mistake of elevating human activity more and saying, well, if those people would just do the right thing and, and, and I'm waiting for them to do the right thing and I'm not going to them, they need to come to me. Okay, can I just tell you, you haven't glanced at Jesus once when you do that. To stare at Jesus is to stare at the doctrine of justification that chased you down when you were running away from him. To hold other people hostage, to refuse to interact, to refuse to forgive, it gives away that I haven't stared at the doctrine of justification lately. I've just been watching people and they just have offended me and, and I don't like them and I don't like this one and that one. Maybe we need to be reformed as well, right? And reminded to not tamper with this doctrine of justification. So maybe just pray for us before we let Kurt. Kurt, you got a good song? You should have a good song this morning. This is an easy message to have a good song for. Let's pray together. Lord, what we have stared at for a little while this morning is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And it doesn't mean that there aren't other big deals in the Bible, but this is a big deal in a unique way. Because it's about what makes us in a relationship with you. It's about what makes your nearness come near to us. It's about what makes us accepted by you. And Lord, that's the building blocks. That's the foundation for whatever we're going to think about for tomorrow. So Lord, for any person who is here, oh God, pray for any person who's here who stares back at their life and they can't seem to muster enough good activity to believe that you would be good to them in the future. God, would you rescue us from that posture? God, would you make us to realize that your favor and your grace doesn't come to our lives because we have warmed up to it. It comes to us because of Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf. It comes and it shows up and then it produces an effect on us. So God, would you let every one of us know here this morning, God, we don't, we don't have to achieve your grace, your nearness, our acceptance with you. Lord, it's like a light switch got turned on. It's there. It's available to us right now. Lord, let that be true of every person here. Let not one person feel as though your nearness is not available to them or your acceptance is not available to them. Lord, you are near and you accept us because you see us as righteous because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, we today, Reformation Day, we celebrate this doctrine of justification. In Jesus' name. Amen. For the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. 
My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me behold him there behold him there the Spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is here with Christ on my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. One with Himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by His blood. My life is here with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Father, thank you that we are counted righteous before your throne, God. Because of the, the ever, never changing work of Christ on that cross, Lord, that we are forever justified. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.